Way back when I was a kid in the 1980s, I met a researcher who led a special lab at Texas Instruments. He was very kind to me, answering my continuous string of questions about his work. At the time, I was studying microbiology on a special scholarship, and TI very kindly opened their medical device uh, development lab to me. Um, but as we talked, this brilliant guy, this scientist, kept, kept pushing me, encouraging me to change my major. He kept saying, you need to change your major, you need to switch, you need to switch. And he kept pushing me to switch from human biology, which is what I was studying, to what at the time was called microsoftware programming. And I couldn't figure out why I wasn't interested at all in that. So finally one time I said, why do you keep saying I should switch my major? And he said this, I never forgot, he said phones, he said telephones. Telephones have not been tapped. The potential of the telephone is unbelievable. He said, when they are finally tapped, it will change the world. I was absolutely befuddled. The telephone had been around for decades, and, and change, any change capacity seemed to me have already been tapped out. I mean, the pinnacle, surely, was the Westinghouse slimline with the long cord, right? Uh, are any of you old enough to have had one of those phones? You had the slimline with the long cord. That was the important part, yeah. You could walk around the house. It was incredible. Of course, over the ensuing years, that TI prophet was proven exactly right. The world was changed. I, I have in my hand here a computer that is more powerful than the one that was in that TI lab, which took up an entire room. When people realized the phone's potential and tapped into it, the world truly was changed. In fact, there is hardly any part of our lives that is not touched by smartphones. Whatever you're facing, the answer is there's an app for that, right? With that in mind, open your Bible to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. I just want you to look at the first two words. The text begins with these words, now concerning. It's important to remember that 1 Corinthians is answering a bunch of questions. It was brought by a delegation from the church in Corinth to uh, where Paul was, his base in Ephesus. Since chapter 12 starts now concerning, we know a new subject is about to be broached. That new subject is God the Holy Spirit, who is amazing. In smartphone terms, we might say the Spirit has a number of really important apps. Whatever you need, God the Holy Spirit has an app for that. Just as phones needed to be tapped to change our world, so the Holy Spirit needs to be embraced in order to transform our lives beyond imagination. Read verses 1 through 3. Now, concerning what comes from the Spirit, brothers, I do not want you to be unaware you know that when you were pagans, you used to be led off to the idols that could not speak. Therefore, I'm informing you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God says Jesus is cursed. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. As we summarize in your notes there inside your bulletin you got when you came in, the Spirit directs to Lordship. Look up here, please. Everybody tell me, what is this? What's it a picture of? It is a tortoise on a fence post. That is right. Now, ignore everything else about the picture and just answer me this question. Is there any way that that tortoise got up there by itself? No. Anytime you see a turtle on a fence post, you know someone put it there in a similar way. This text is reminding us that no one responds to the lordship of Jesus on human power alone. It is not through the flesh that we submit to the lordship of Jesus. It is by God's Spirit. Now, Sometimes, <clears throat> well-intentioned Bible readers will think that verse 3 is setting up some kind of litmus test for real Christians, right? Uh, they'll say true believers, whatever that means. I mean, one, is either, one either believes or one doesn't. But real Christians, they'll say, uh, can't say Jesus is cursed. And likewise, non-Christians cannot say the words Jesus is Lord. That simply isn't true. Christians can lie about the Lord. 
And the, and the Bible says, the Bible itself says, non-believers will call out to him, Lord, Lord, but not really know who he is. To say that verse 3 is some kind of test is an amazingly human-centered mistake. The passage is about the Holy Spirit. It's not about people. It is God the Spirit who draws non-believers to the Lord Jesus. Without his intervention, no one responds to the truth about Jesus. Without the Spirit's drawing, all people are stuck in the default mode, which is that Jesus is cursed. And by the way, that is exactly what both Roman and Jewish law said about anyone who hung on a tree. They were cursed. It is, it is God the Spirit who opens human minds to the truth that Jesus is Yahweh. The Spirit testifies Jesus is the Savior God who conquered the curse for everyone who would trust Him. He's the one who puts us turtles up on the fence post of Jesus' Lordship. All God's people said... The point of verse 3 is not some litmus test. It's a calling to change your major. Switch your major. Major on the Spirit. Switch from human biology to God the Holy Spirit. My old pal Bob Wilkin put it best. Um, Bob said this. Uh, I put it in your notes, in fact. It is a mistake of the first order to think the Holy Spirit can only work in the lives of believers. If that were true, no one could be saved. Whenever anyone sincerely acknowledges Jesus' lordship, he or she does so as a result of the work of the Holy Spirit in his or her life. It is the Spirit who directs humans to Jesus' lordship. The right side of our notes details another app. Second app, the Spirit grants diverse spiritual gifts. Uh, Pick up the text in verse 4. Now, there are different gifts, but the same Spirit. There are different ministries, but the same Lord. And there are different activities, but the same God activates each gift in each person. A demonstration of the Spirit is given to each person to produce what is beneficial. To one is given a message of wisdom through the Spirit. To another, a message of knowledge by the same Spirit. To another, faith by the same Spirit. To another, gifts of healing by the one Spirit. To another, the performing of miracles. To another, prophecy. To another, distinguishing between spirits. To another, different kinds of languages. To another, interpretation of languages. But one and the same Spirit is active in all these, distributing to each person as He wills. Before we get into the gifts, please notice this amazing arrangement. If you ever doubt whether the Spirit is fully God, this passage alone should be enough to convince you, to, to confirm the truth for you. Look, look at the parallels. Look, different gifts, but the same Spirit. Different ministries, but the same Lord. And by the way, Lord is a term that Paul uses only of Jesus. Uses of Jesus. Always talking about Jesus when he says that. Different activities, but the same God. Whenever you run into God alone in the New Testament text, if there's nothing else around it, it always is referring to God the Father, not the triune God. There's a different writing for that. So, you got parallelism, different, 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 Spirit, Lord, God, right? This kind of parallelism was loved by Hebrew writers like Paul. It was used by other Roman authors as well. In your mind, you're supposed to solve this kind of paragraph the way that, that you balance an equation in mathematics. So you eliminate the repeated words that appear in each part, and what's left are the synonyms. So, so gifts, ministries, activities, they're interrelated, right? There is no beneficial church without activities. There, <clears throat> there are no activities without ministries. They're based on ministries, and ministries depend on God's gifts. Same for the Spirit, Lord, and God. The triune God is one interrelated whole, and the Father God, Lord Jesus, and Holy Spirit are equals in triunity. And the triune God chooses to let His love pour out on Christians through the Spirit. That outpouring continues down in verse 28. Uh, Verse 28, we'll see in a moment, it's actually about something different, but it lists a few more gifts we need to see. So go down to verse 28, slide down there, and let's read that. 
And God has placed these in the church. First apostles, second prophets, third teachers, next miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, managing various kinds of languages. Now, look at all the gifts that are listed here, would you? This is what we have in this chapter of 1 Corinthians. Bless you. A message of wisdom, a message of knowledge, faith, gifts of healing, performing miracles, prophecy, distinguishing between spirits, different kinds of languages, interpretation of languages, apostles, teaching, helping, and administration or management, depending on your translation. By the way, there are four other passages that also discuss spiritual gifts. Uh, they are Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 14, forgive the typo, Ephesians 4, and 1 Peter 4. Since we are studying uh, 1 Corinthians, we're not going to go to all those other passages because we're not studying spiritual gifts, we're studying this book. Just for your edification, if you go to them, these are the other gifts that are listed in other passages, so you, just so you can have the complete list. Other passages list exhortation, giving, gift of leadership, mercy, evangelism, pastoring, and speaking. They don't, they're not the same thing. I just couldn't fit them on another line. So they all went together. All right, we're going to focus on the ones listed in 1 Corinthians 12. Now, looking at our 1 Corinthian gifts, the first is wisdom. It's, that's the English word for the Greek Sophia. Sophia means discernment or, or sharp judgment, especially Sophia implies the application of that discernment, okay? <clears throat> By contrast, knowledge is the Greek gnosis. Um, gnosis is, is breadth and depth of information. Um, a friend of mine told me once the difference between wisdom and knowledge is wisdom is knowing that a tomato is, uh, knowledge is knowing that a tomato is a fruit, wisdom is not putting it in your fruit salad, okay? That's, uh, that's the difference. Now, here's what's intriguing. Wisdom and knowledge are both needed, right? It, it is a fruit. Yeah, really, I'm, I'm telling you, the kid, the kid back there, really? Um, <clears throat> they're both needed, and each of them comes from God's Spirit. I bring that up. That's really significant because, I don't know if you've noticed, but of all the spiritual gifts, these two, wisdom and knowledge, are the ones we are most likely to give humans credit for, and it's a mistake. I remember the first time my dad told me that he was impressed with my wisdom. It was a wonderful blessing. But what do you think happened? Just what do you think happened inside my teenage soul? My dad tells me he's impressed with my wisdom. What do you think happened inside my teenage soul? Let me, let, me, let me put it this way. Do you think I was humbly joyful that God would deign to give me wisdom which benefited my family? Or do you think that I was really excited and proud about how awesome I am? Which do you think it was? Yeah, the proud one horribly. You're right. That's exactly what it was. Thankfully, God corrected it through Scripture and pain and prayer. But... That is a key theme to keep in mind. Through all these gifts, okay, both the ones listed here and in other texts, these are gifts from God. They do not speak to our greatness, but to His. Amen? Faith is the next one listed. It can be a special gift as well. In this context, faith likely means a measure of trust beyond what all Christians possess. Um, I have experienced this. There have been times especially when we've been beginning a new work, there have been times that I found myself, I know this sounds weird, but I found myself energized and excited about the lack of visible means. Um, doing something that you're convinced the Lord has given you to do and trusting God to provide can be absolutely exhilarating when you have absolutely no clue about the means of support. What to everybody else looks like, like empty air to you feels I don't know how to describe it. It just feels completely solid. Healing is the next one. Heal it, it's just what it appears to be. It is the capacity to make human beings well. Uh, the performing of miracles. Now, that one's really tough to translate. Um, the Greek, inergema dunamis, uh, literally means miraculous power carried into effect. Uh, if, if God 
Only employed in ergema here, it'd be pretty simple translation. It would mean the energy to get things done. And, and if dunamis alone were used, then it would, it would mean dynamic, miraculous power. But together, they're a really rare combination. They're hardly ever used together in literature, and it opens a wide variety of, manifest, wide variety of manifestations. Um, if I had to choose one picture to put on this combination so that we could understand it, I would probably select Samson. Do you remember Samson, the Old Testament judge? Remember him? Um, he was indwelt by God's Spirit. Remember that. That's important. He was indwelt by God's Spirit, which was a, an incredibly rare thing. It's not like today when every believer in Jesus has God's Holy Spirit. That was a very rare thing. And, and Samson, in the Spirit's gifting, displayed miraculous power carried into effect. That's what this is talking about. Prophecy is next on our list. Listen very carefully, please. Prophecy is the speaking of God's Word applying it to people for edification, encouragement, and comfort. This is the gift of prophecy. It is not to be confused with the office of prophet from the Old Testament. The office of prophet is a very different thing. We're told in the Scripture that that is closed. This is the gift of prophecy, the application, the speaking of God's Word into people's lives. The ability to distinguish between spirits is not as mystical as it sounds. In Greco-Roman context, where this was written, spirits was used for the spirit of an age, for the, for the dominant ideas and philosophies of a particular time period. It's what the Germans would later call zeitgeist. Okay, that's what spirits means here. The capacity to look into the spirit of an age and discern between truth and error that has a spiritual roof. It is a gift of God. I will never forget what one of my professors said to me. I was talking with Dr. J. Dwight Pentecost about the spirit gifts, and he said this, Why ain't if the Corinthians possessed this gift, they either weren't using it or they weren't listening to those who did distinguish between the spirits. And we are not immune to that problem. We also get carried away by bad spiritual zeitgeist. That's why we're studying this book. So that unlike Corinth, we will use our powers for good. All God's people said? Amen. The next gift, tongues, often misunderstood. The Greek text clearly indicates a known living human language. That's why my translation renders it different kinds of languages. The spiritual gift here is the ability to speak clearly and with understanding a language one does not know. And the same is true in reverse of the interpretation of languages. I have told some of you before about the time I was at a church in Wales. My dear friend, Dr. Harvey McMahon, uh, a lad from Ireland who teaches at Cambridge University, runs a lab there, actually. Uh, Harvey and I were at church together in Wales, and uh, not being in any way conversant in Welsh, I wasn't understanding anything. The whole, it was just blather to me. I was just listening, enjoying the singing, so much beautiful singing in the Welsh church, but, but I didn't understand the preacher at all. And then suddenly, I mean suddenly, it was like lightning struck. I understood every single word as if he were speaking in English. I'm looking around. No one's changed. Hair standing up on my arms, back of my neck. I'm leaning forward only to have Harvey put his hand on my shoulder and pull me back and say, Ah, sit back, you goof. He's reading a quote from a book in English. You don't have the gift of interpretation. <laughs> And soon after the quote finished, and I realized Harvey was correct, miraculous interpretation is not given to me. <laughs> the next gift is another one that's often misrepresented. Apostle does not mean the office of apostle. The Bible tells us Paul was the last person to hold the office of apostle. The office of apostle was the people who saw the resurrected Jesus and were sent to start his first churches. 
The spiritual gift of apostle is the supernatural ability to start new things. The word apostle in Greek just means beginner, uh, a starter. It's the ability to start new things. This is one of my gifts. I'm good at starting new things. It has nothing to do with any office. It is a gift of creativity. Now, looking at verse 28, where we found the last of our gifts in this text. If you were just thinking about these as lists of gifts, verse 28 is kind of weird because Paul repeats himself with a couple of these. Why is that? This is so cool, so cool. It's because verse 28 is, is actually, the gifts are secondary here. Paul's walking us through the timeline of a new church. Paul's lesson here is on the Corinthian church history, which, by the way, is the same process for every single church plant in any time. Think about what God does. First thing he does is choose people who have a vision to start something new, people with a gift of apostle. And then prophets begin applying God's word to that particular cultural context. Teachers follow who build up the body, teaching the scripture. Then come other body life things, miracles, healings, which many have seen deep in the church and draw people to trust Christ. And that leads to more complexity. So helpers are needed, administrators are needed, and that increases the reach so that language gifts come in handy. See, it's church planting 101. That's what verse 28 is. Now, to wrap up with these gifts, the last three in this text from verse 28 are fairly well understood and critically important for a healthy church. Teaching, helping, and management. Just because I, I probably don't need to explain those. Those are well understood. But just because we are familiar with these doesn't mean they're easy, nor that we should take them for granted. Now, in light of that list, I know, I know what you're thinking. In your own Irish professor accent, you were saying, is this a sad list, or can we add to God's words to fit our idea of an evolving society? Uh, great question. The answer is no. No, you cannot. Sadly, that is what some of our dear brethren do. They add all kinds of things to the lists uh, given in Scripture. For example, I have seen each of the following listed as a spiritual gift. You ready? I'm just going to give you four. There are even more. Money as a spiritual gift. Criticism. Many of us have that gift. Um, <laughs> wooing, serious, wooing the opposite sex as a spiritual gift. <laughs> Who knew? Uh, for telling the future. Boy, you better not mess up on that one. I mean, the Bible's very, very clear. You, you're ever wrong one time on predicting the future, and the Bible says you're to be treated as a false prophet. All right? Many things, some, some of them are fine, some are amoral, some are decidedly immoral. Many things are wrongly credited to the Spirit as special gifts. They aren't. They aren't. They may be abilities, they may be talents, but they aren't spiritual gifts. They're different. Of course, that leads, that leads to your next very logical question, which you pose in your Welsh accent, and here it is. Thank you, Alan Roberts, for that brilliant Welsh. Alan, uh, one of our ushers, is from Wales. He did that so that I could practice it and then say it in Welsh. It was a failure, complete and utter failure. <laughs> so I just played his recording, which you all know, of course, having the gift of interpretation, you know that means how does one discern what one's gifts are and how they differ from one's other traits? It's a great question. That, by the way, is the exact question that I posed years ago to my teacher, Dr. Pentecost. Dr. P told me, we were sitting in his office at Dallas Seminary, and he said, Wayne, you need to research interests. He thought that interests could be the best way to distinguish spiritual gifts from natural abilities or experiences or anything else that people confuse with spiritual gifts. So here's what I did. I set up an experiment. I got 100 people who, felt, uh, who said they felt very confident that they knew at least one of their spiritual gifts. Okay, and they all agreed, these kind people agreed to come to this auditorium, and, uh, and we, we set them down at desks, and each one, first thing they did was write down on a piece of paper what, 
what they saw as their spiritual gift. And then we set that aside. And then I handed out to them an interest inventory, totally secular interest inventory, Gifford Zimmerman, by the way, in case any of you use those. It's a really good tool. And, uh, and they took this interest inventory, took about 45 minutes, and Gifford Zimmerman at the end gives you a major in one of 17 interest areas. Now, after they had their major, I then flashed up on the screen some work that I had done with a couple of other people thinking through what are spiritual gifts that align with those majors, right? So each of them had a a major that was totally secular, and then they looked and went, oh my goodness, that matches up with some spiritual gift. Then we took their Giffords and Roman with their, their spiritual gift major, and then they took their piece of paper and put them side by side. This was astonishing. We had a 100% match. Never seen anything like it in my life. It was unbelievable. 100% match. The interest approach allowed people to sneak up on how the Spirit was, was wiring them without being blockaded by their past or by their, their natural talents. We thought that was too good of an experiment, and, and we thought we must have done something wrong because you don't usually get results like that. So one of my colleagues came in, and he did another group of 100 people and did the exact same thing, and we got a 98% match that time. And all that led to this, the Discovery Trail, which was the first thing I ever wrote for Christians that was published. If you want to determine your gifts, and you should, if you want to put your gifts in context along with your experiences and your abilities and your resources, please visit our site, that website right there, and take the discovery inventory that is there. I, I encourage you to do so. One final thing on this app of the Spirit. Please note that it is not about you. Look at verse 7. God's spiritual gifts are given for the benefit of the whole church, or as other translations put it, for the common good. Corinth appears to have missed this, gotten all excited about their own specialness and how each person should boast about his or her gifts. They thought life revolved around them. It is tragic. Thank goodness we never do that today. But we do. Recently, I spoke with a pastor whose church attendance has changed dramatically. Now, this church is bigger than ever. They've got more members than ever. It's growing like crazy. But their last uh, period of time, they did a very thorough study, and they found that their average family, average family in their church, is only attending 1.7 times per month. Yet that, no, that doesn't mean they left three-quarters of the way through the sermon. They, they only, it's an average, anyway. Um, but what's fascinating about that, so less than two times a month, average family's attendance. Only three years before that, the last time they had done this same study, they found that their average family attended 2.6 times per month. That is a precipitous drop. Now, there are a number of factors in that. Some of them are national, some are local, some have to do with that church, things they need to grow and change. We were having a great talk about all that. But this was what struck him and, frankly, struck me as well. They had one very brave person who wrote in their study this comment, and I think it has a lot to do with what was going on. The guy wrote and said, We get all we need this way, talking about coming less than two times a month. We're so thankful for the messages online and the other things the church gives because we just have too many activities to come more often, close quote. I think that's one of the saddest things I've ever read. No understanding there that God commands us not to flag in meeting together. No comprehension that it isn't about them. That poor family doesn't even seem to realize life is not all about them. There is no indication they realize that they have been gifted by God precisely to build up the church for the common good, not their good. And that's why Paul next goes to this beautiful image of the interconnected body. 
The rest of the chapter is about how the Spirit baptizes all Christians into one body. This is our final app about the Spirit. He baptizes all Christians into one body, and it starts with an object lesson. The lesson is that a body is made up of many parts. Go to verse 12. For as the body is one and has many parts, and all the parts of that body, though many, are one body, so also is Christ. For we were all baptized by one Spirit into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of the one Spirit, so the body is not one part, but many. Christians are viewed together by God as the body of Christ. We're all different. We're all necessary. We are all equal in importance. Do you ever stop to think about that? We are joined together in one being, no matter our situation or background. Look, look, look at your text. It reads, slave or free. They were Roman citizens and slaves bound together in unity. The world had never, ever seen anything like that. And then, and then it says, Jew or Greek. Okay, here's the wildest part about that statement. The Jewish culture and the Greek culture used this term of anyone who was not part of their culture, barbarian. That was their word. And yet, these people who consider everyone else to be barbarians are joined together in one marvelous, barbarous unity. That is incredible. That kind of community is world-changing. Now, now this text is probably referring to the local visible church, but the lesson applies to the invisible universal church of all Christians as well. By the way, the Greek baptizo here in verse 13, it's really instructive. Baptizo means uh, displaying a change of identity. All Christians are baptized by the Spirit into one body. Our identity now is this new body. That's what God's Spirit does immediately when a person trusts Jesus. Over the years, I have been blessed to see thousands of people believe in Jesus. When that occurs, the Spirit immediately makes that Christian an identified part of the body. Whatever their feelings, each person who trusts Jesus is spiritually baptized. It is a fact it is not an experience to pursue. Speaking of feelings, feelings do not determine truth. Look at the next section, verse 15. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I don't belong to the body. In spite of this, it still belongs to the body. If the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I don't belong to the body. In spite of this, it still belongs to the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But now God has placed each one of the parts in the body just as he wanted. And if they were all the same part, where would the body be? Comparison is the language of the devil. It's what Satan used back in the garden, right? Tempting Eve, saying you'll be like God. Well, here we see people jealous because they want to be like other parts of the body. We have all very likely experienced this, right? Just one example, Charles Schultz did a long series on this a number of years ago where all the different parts of Snoopy's body were all complaining about the other parts and they didn't want to work together. He's trying to run and his feet say, I don't like the rest of it, I'm not going to run anymore. And, and, and each of them is bothered about who's the most important. And Snoopy, like Paul, teaches us it doesn't matter if I feel unimportant in comparison to some other popular part. As the scripture tells me, in spite of this, I still belong to the body. Feelings have nothing to do with it. One of our men's Bible studies was learning through a related passage, and they sent me this note a couple of weeks ago. They wrote me and said, Wayne, our study that they were doing posed questions by Sinclair Ferguson, which seem relevant to the upcoming message on 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Two, listen to these questions. These are really good. Is your self-image formed by the thought that I am part of Jesus' very body? Do you think of your brothers and sisters in Christ as people in whom the Holy Spirit dwells and that you are united to them in Christ by the Spirit? 
Those are good questions. Thinking on those will change you. We, and, and we are united. Read the next section, verse 20. Now, there are many parts, yet one body. So the eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. Or again, the head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. But even more, those parts of the body that seem to be weaker are necessary. And those parts of the body we think to be less honorable, we clothe them with greater honor, and our unpresentable parts have a better presentation. But our presentable parts have no need of clothing. Instead, God has put the body together, giving greater honor to the less honorable, so there will be no division in the body. But the members would have the same concern for each other. So if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. If one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. The body is interconnected. Many of you are aware that not long ago, I, uh, I tore much of the, uh, the medial collateral ligament in my leg. It's about like that. Um, one of the things that was fascinating to me was the hardest part of the recovery was reducing the pain, not in my knee, the pain in my, in my thigh and my calf. The, the biggest problem was getting the spasms out of the vastus medialis and the gastronemius muscles. Here's why. You see, when I tore that ligament, these muscles were traumatized because the body's interconnected. And then as I tried to rehab, they were overworking themselves all the time because they're trying to cover for that ligament that's, that's not there or almost not there. And the biggest work was trying to get these guys to relax and not do all the covering so that I could actually rehab and heal. That is inevitable because the body's interconnected. The same is true of you, of the church. We rejoice or ache based on our brethren. Right now, I, I, I look over here and I see Mrs. Bergstad, and I think of her husband in the hospital today who's doing beautifully, but who, um, who had a pulmonary embolism just a couple days ago, and we thought we were going to lose him. We ached over that. And then I, I look back here at my brother who's been gone for weeks because he's been in rehab, and he's here, and we rejoice over that, right? Now, please don't misunderstand. Our joy is not dependent on any other people or any circumstances, our joy is in the Lord, and thus it's beyond circumstance, but we do hurt when other Christians hurt, and we celebrate when they do. I don't think anyone's ever commented on this better than the English pastor John Donne. He wrote the famous poem that has this line in it, no man is an island entire of itself. Every man is a piece of the continent, a part of the main. But that brings up a big problem. It's always been an issue, but we are experts at it today. The problem is underappreciated community. It's, it's in what that family wrote to my pastor friend. Remember, they, we get all that we need this way. We're so thankful for messages online and other things the church gives because we have just too many activities to come more often. Unappreciated, underdeveloped community. Theologian Craig Blomberg nails the problem, and I think he nails the main cause in the quote there in your notes. Look what Craig wrote. All of Paul's emphasis on diversity within unity and unity within diversity calls into question the behavior of growing numbers of Americans who believe in God and even Christ and yet drop out of church life or at least fade to its periphery. In a land still heavily influenced by a heritage of rugged individualism, believers need to work ever harder to demonstrate that Christianity is not merely a personal religion but fundamentally corporate. Even evangelical language for conversion betrays this bias, a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. That is the necessary starting point, but we dare not stop until that relationship leads to intimate interpersonal relationships with other Christians, close quote. That biblical interconnection is so important. It is so important that our elders made that the cornerstone of this church's mission statement. 
Remember? Say it with me. The mission of Frisco Bible. We are redeemed community doing the great commission by the power of the Holy Spirit for the glory of God. We are redeemed community. That means we need each other. As Paul points out, even the cool parts can't survive without the rest. And the image is magnificent. Look, Paul notes that we cover up the less presentable parts of our bodies. We honor them with beautiful clothes. In a similar way, God honors the more hidden gifts, the less, the less noticed members of his body. He makes all beautiful, so there's no jealousy for anyone. Okay, let's read the last of our text, verse 27. Now you are the body of Christ and individual members of it. And then 28 that we read before, God has placed these in his church. First apostles, second prophets, third teachers, next miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, managing, various kinds of language. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? And, and by the way, the condition in which this is written implies a, a very clear no. Of course they're not. Are all teachers? Do all do miracles? Do all have gifts of healing? Do all speak in other languages? Do all interpret? But desire the greater gifts, and I will show you an even better way. This is a reset of the whole argument. It's a nice recap. And what, it, what it's designed to do is not just summarize what we've read, but set up chapter 13. Um, because these verses summarize what we've already said, I don't think I need to expound on it now. I do think it's important to point out three common mistakes that this paragraph addresses. Three common mistakes. Problem number one is the person who claims that they must not have a gift because they can't see anything special about themselves, right? While according to God, each and every Christian has at least one gift from the Spirit, not to mention many other talents and blessings. So when you claim that you have nothing, you're asking me to believe your feelings or lack of feelings instead of God. Hmm. I'll, I'll stick with God's word instead. Thank you. Mistake number two is the Christian who thinks it's noble to desire none of the gifts. Um, this actually is not as rare as you might think. It's, it's a little bit like what we see regarding the eternal rewards discussion earlier, earlier in the book of 1 Corinthians that we talked about eternal rewards. Some people think, oh, it's just, it's just better to seek none of this. But that is precisely the opposite of what God commands. He says desire his gift, just like the rewards. He says desire these. Now, he doesn't say to desire them for yourself out of selfishness. He does tell us to seek, to, to utilize, to enjoy, to desire his gifts. So, so if you want to know how to use your gifts, how to find your gifts, I told you to go to the website. You can also talk to our pastors. They would love to sit down with you and help you work on this. Desire, use your gifts. Mistake number three is the person who says, desire all the gifts, right? We hear this one really often from our precious friends in charismatic churches. But it, it's exactly what Paul doesn't say. He never says to desire them all. In fact, he even, he even says desire the greater ones and a better way, which will be revealed in the next chapter. Like Corinth, many churches today are trying so hard to get everything that they miss the most important thing. Spoiler alert for next time. The most important thing is to love. Love is the greater way, which we'll study next time. With that in mind, let's pray. Pray with me, please. Father, I pray for myself. I pray for my brothers and sisters in Christ. Jesus, thank you for rescuing us, for being our Lord. Holy Spirit, whatever we face, we know you have an app for that. Direct us, please, to the Lord Jesus. Continue to direct us to the Lordship of Jesus. Thank you and continue to grant diverse spiritual gifts, everything that is needed for Jesus' body. And thank you for baptizing us all into one body. Spirit, we pray you activate these apps to change the world through us. 
And, and, and speaking of changing, Triune God, I pray for anybody studying with me that does not believe in Jesus. Please, Holy Spirit, draw them to your Lordship right now. I, I, they may be like I was. They may think they're smart. <laughs> they may think they're good. Or they, or they may be toying around with atheism, which requires more faith than I can imagine. C.S. Lewis said it so well. Atheist has to be so careful. Everywhere is lurking something that will unravel the, the ridiculous tentative fabric of no being. Friend, listen carefully. Whatever your situation, Jesus, God the Son, loves you. He, God, knows you, knew you before the foundation of the world. Oversaw your creation. Came to earth as God the Son and died on a Roman cross because you're a sinner and you can't pay your own sin. And thus he bridged the gap that exists between you and perfectly holy God. And then he rose from the dead. An undeniable historical fact proving that he is God and conquers death. And then he said, if you will believe in me, you get to conquer death as well. It, most importantly, what we talked about here, you get to be in God's family, baptized into the body of Christ. It's by faith. You can't earn your way to God, but you can trust the one who made a way. Right now, believe on Jesus. Trust him as your Savior. The one who is Lord, believe in him. If you just prayed to trust Jesus, raise your hand. Good for you. Amen. Father, I thank you for these new believers. I thank you for those of us who have been by your wonderful grace with you a long time. And I do pray you'll use us, just as the offering we're about to take is an example of this, that you will use us to bless your church and your world. Use our gifts in every way. In Jesus' name, amen.